Thanks to Green Chef for supporting Future Hindsight. Green Chef's expert chefs design flavorful recipes for your lifestyle that go way beyond the ordinary. Go to greenchef.com slash hopeful100 and use code hopeful100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. Thank you also to The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating shows. We're enjoying it, and we think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. At this juncture where we face so much pain and division and also looking at continued and potential pain around climate change and income inequality, that we have this ability to invest in a greater, better, more equitable future where everyone can see their common interests and actually be a true democracy that is for all people. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a civic engagement podcast. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Our guest is Christina Sinsun Ramirez. She's the executive director of NextGen America, where she's focused on building democracy up one young voter at a time. She has deep experience in being a citizen changemaker, whether that's working with the immigrant community, standing up for workers, running for U.S. Senate, or harnessing the political power of young people. Today, we talk about her deep career in organizing, engaging in the big ideas, and having the courage to imagine a true democracy that works for all people. We start our conversation with the mission of NextGen America. NextGen America is mobilizing the largest and most diverse generation in American history, which is young voters. Every time our country has had the courage or imagination to tackle a big problem, it has always taken young people pushing at the forefront. And so we're trying to harness that power to make sure they turn up at the polls and make our elected officials and government respond to the greatest needs and challenges we face. How do you do that? How do you mobilize the youth vote? Well, we were founded in 2013 by Tom Steyer. The organization, since it started, has registered 1.6 million young people in key battleground states. We've also built a massive operation this last election. We talked to 10.5 million young people in 11 states and got 4.5 million of them out to vote. And we have a 25,000 strong person volunteer team that texts, calls, and contacts young voters across the country. What's incredible about NextGen is the scale of what they do on registration and mobilization of young voters is really unmatched. And now we are getting ready to harness that power into a new strategy into 2024 to really focus on key battleground states where young voters can make the decisive difference. And the other thing we do is we know that young voters while very progressive, really see themselves as independent voters. And at NextGen, we see it as our job, not only to elect progressives, but hold them accountable to delivering the agenda and change that a young generation needs. So just like you said, young people care, but they don't actually vote in droves. 
What have you found is the most effective way to actually get them to turn up and say, yes, I care about these issues and I'm going to vote now? I live in Texas and we have one of the youngest electorates in the country. One in three eligible voters starting next year will be under the age of 30 in Texas. And we estimate that there's 2.5 million young progressives in Texas and 1.5 million of them are not registered. The first step is registering. And we've seen when we register people at NextGen, 73% of them turn out. I think young people deeply want to be engaged, but you know, the number one reason for young Latinos, why they say they don't vote is that no one ever talked to them about who to vote for or what the issues were, and they didn't know who to vote for. So it's a cyclical problem. People say young people don't vote, but then they don't go invest in them. And young people say, well, I didn't know who to vote for or uh, what was on the ballot. And so we're trying to break that cycle. You know, I give the example of this young woman that I've worked with since she was 17 years old. Her name is Maggie Juarez. And I met her um, a few weeks after the immigration raids that were happening when Trump took office in early 2017. And she had helped lead a walkout at her school. Um, mostly all young Latinos, working class kids who were citizens themselves. Maybe they had a family member that was an immigrant and they had all left school and they were incredibly angry and hurt to see these actions. All of them were about to become eligible to vote. And at the time, my organization, Jolt, was the only organization at that rally registering and engaging all those young people. And Maggie became one of the first people in her family to vote and has stayed active ever since. She's now 21 and she's voted in every election that she can and has gotten incredibly informed. And it just took that one intervention of meeting her around an issue that she cared very deeply about and letting her know that one of her huge tools and power she had was voting and that she could also expand that power by getting other people to vote in her community. That has changed Maggie's trajectory and also changed her in understanding that she has tremendous power. And my message has always been to especially young brown and black kids and kids of color that feel like their communities were under attack for the last several years that we've been under attack because we are so powerful, that people are not just afraid of people like my 62-year-old Mexican immigrant mother, but they are deeply afraid of me, her U.S. citizen daughter that can vote because I have a dramatically different vision for my country than the one I see today. So since you talked about immigration here, I think what's lost a lot of the times is that when you target one community of immigrants, it actually affects all immigrants. So can you talk a little bit about that and, and why immigrants, uh, and I'm an immigrant myself, are affected? Yeah, I feel so much of the discussion about immigration was really a conversation about race and power and voting. And it's been disguised as about who has uh, a certain kind of status or recognition. Under the Trump administration, we saw a whole department set up at Homeland Security that was just looking at um, purging people that were naturalized citizens that supposedly didn't have a right to be. We saw uh, the status of being an immigrant really no longer celebrated. And that went not just for Latinos, but all 
immigrants, seeing that we were not celebrated to be part of this country and the hard work and culture that we help bring to this country that makes it who it is. At the end of the day, when we talk about immigrants, really, it was Asian immigrants, African immigrants, and immigrants from Latin America, which are of all different races. But it was really about who could be an American based on race. And immigrant became a filler for that conversation. And what I see is whether it was trying to purge naturalized citizens, trying to block DACA recipients from ever being able to become citizens, or a, an intentional massive undercount in the U.S. census that what we need to understand that these were the same old tools of poll taxes and literacy tests repackaged with the same purpose, which is to deny communities of color the right to vote and deny us the right to be seen as equally as American as anyone else. Yes, well said. Uh, you've been advocating for people who are dispossessed in many ways for a long time. You co-founded the Workers' Defense Project, which is a workers' rights organization. How did you come to start that? And how does that work at that time inform the work you do today? Yeah, so I always say I grew up like in the perfect trifecta, which is Ohio, Texas, and Mexico. My dad is a white American middle-class hippie that was a student at UT Austin and went down with a bunch of friends to Mexico in the 70s where he met my mom. And my mom is the oldest of nine children from a very poor farm working family. And so I got to live in two worlds growing up. I really did grow up in between one world that was very white and middle class and one that was very poor and brown. And it gave me this great ability to see into two worlds. And it also made me see that it didn't seem to matter how hard my Mexican family worked, that they just never seemed to get ahead and that the rules were different for different groups of people. And especially as a mixed race kid myself, um, you know, I also remember as a child, I'm light skinned, but my mother's dark skinned, that when we would go to meet with doctors for the first time or teachers, or we would go into stores, that I could tell how differently people would treat us if we were with my father versus when we were with my mother. And as a young child, you don't have the words for it, but it makes you angry because you know something's really deeply unfair. And so I wanted to work with the immigrant community when I was very young. And I got involved with immigrants and realized that one of the deepest, most difficult issues was the fact that so many immigrants in our state are undocumented in Texas, half of the workforce. And one in five of them would go out to work to do labor that benefited us all, and they wouldn't be paid for that work. And as I dug in deeper, I realized, along with my colleagues, that every two and a half days, a construction worker was dying on the job in Texas disproportionately a huge number of them were undocumented immigrants. And very simple example, we had workers even dying of heat exhaustion. Um, it's very hot in Texas in the summer. People were not being given breaks or water, um, numerous cases and being hospitalized or dying. And so we were able to pass laws in Dallas and in Austin that gave like a quarter million construction workers the right to paid rest breaks that was really a life-saving measure for them. 
But along the way, I also realized, God, if we're never going to be able to really win what working people deserve, if we don't change who's in office that understands what they go through and has a deeper appreciation of who they're supposed to be accountable to. And so that is what got me engaged in democracy. And I always say that who taught me to have the courage to fight back and to actually try and build a government that represented all of us were the people that were seen as powerless, people that were poor, people that didn't speak English, and people that didn't even have a right to vote, taught me so much about democracy and what our country could and should be. So congratulations on those victories for the workers and the powerless. What did you learn is possible for our democracy, given that you have been uh, so successful to represent uh, these workers? What I really learned was at the time, we didn't have many allies. So in the labor movement in the beginning, they didn't want to be our allies. Philanthropic partners didn't want to be seen as supporting undocumented workers. And it was at that time, not the most popular thing to be doing. And people would tell me when I would go ask for their support, people that I thought should be natural allies, that look, you weren't going to be able to change anything for working people in Texas and that it was impossible to organize undocumented workers. And it made me incredibly angry when people would tell me that. And in the beginning when I was young and it was really hard to raise the resources we needed to do all of the work that I didn't know how to do, I... And I will say there were moments when I wanted to quit. And when I would think of wanting to quit, I would think of the people that I represented and that they didn't get to quit. Like I was facing rejection. They were facing circumstances that were really life or death. And so that kept me going. If I quit, it meant giving up on them. And that was something that I refused to do. And I decided instead of being angry or disheartened by rejection, to take it as a personal challenge to prove people wrong. And that has always been my motto of when you do something new, you should expect rejection. You should expect people not to come along. But you keep the door open for them because eventually they will be there. And I can think of unions that I worked with that were construction unions that were mostly white American members and leadership. And in the beginning, they were very hesitant, if not outwardly hostile to working with us. And in the end... They became some of my best friends. I kept the door open to them. And when there was one occasion when three immigrant undocumented workers died, they came to the vigil we had where we laid out 142 work boots on the city plaza, which was the number of workers that had been killed on the job in Texas that year. And they came up to me and they said, I'm sorry that we weren't here with you before, but now we're with you. And so that is the lesson that I've learned is have the courage to imagine what you can do and don't listen to people if they say something isn't possible. It isn't possible in their imagination because they haven't tried. Wow, that's huge. So how do you keep the door open? What do you do or what do you say that signals to them that you're open to continue dialogue? Well, I will I will literally say, well, I know you might not be open to working with us now, but I want to, you to know I'm really excited to get you on board and that when you're ready, we're absolutely ready to work with you. Um, or I just keep coming back to them, even if they say no. If I really believe that someone should be aligned with us, 
then I just keep going back until they're ready. And I remember someone telling me, look like, I probably will never work with you and went through their litany of reasons. And I remember I told her, I said, I don't know if you know this about me, but I love a personal challenge and someone that plays hard to get. So I can't wait till we're best (laughs) friends. (laughs) And eventually she came around. Also, I think poking fun at the seriousness sometimes and letting people know, like, we're all people. It's okay. We can let down our guard. Excellent. Before we continue our conversation, I want to share that I'm really enjoying working with and cooking with Green Chef, the first USDA-certified organic meal kit company. Green Chef is owned by HelloFresh, and with a wide array of meal plans to choose from, there really is something for everyone. I love switching between the brands, and now you can enjoy both brands at a discount. Go to greenchef.com slash hopeful100 and use code hopeful100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. Green Chef takes care of meal planning, grocery shopping, and even some food prep, giving you more time to tackle back-to-school season. So it's easier than ever to eat well with satisfying home-cooked dinners that work around your lifestyle, not the other way around. Even my husband is in on it. He cooked the Korean beef bulgogi the other night, which featured broccoli, red bell peppers, cabbage, and buttery cashews. The umami sauce was just the right kind of savory and simply delicious. Go to greenchef.com hopeful100 and use code hopeful100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Each episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show is a conversation with a different fascinating guest. There's an episode for everyone, no matter what you're into. In one episode, he tells the story of a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. And I recommend you check out Jordan's conversation with Lori Santos about happiness being a set of skills we can learn and master, and some tools we can use to hack our own happiness. Jordan is always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests. And we're not talking about pop psychology. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom that you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right away. You can't go wrong with adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So let's talk about your Senate race. You have been working so hard to represent the underrepresented. What prompted you to run for Senate? This is not a usual path for someone with your background. Yeah. So it was in the spring of 2019, John Cornyn, who is our lesser known senator in Texas, but I would say is much more powerful. He was a majority whip at the time was up for election and I was not considering running at all. And I was asked by some progressive political leaders in our state within the labor movement and other progressive organizations if I would run for Senate as a progressive. 
when they called me, I literally laughed because I thought they were joking. And they kept calling me and asking me to really consider it. And so I went on this long run by myself because it helps me think. And I thought, wow, this is absolutely the wrong time for me personally. You know, at that point, I was raising my son by myself. And I thought, well, but it's always been the wrong time for me personally. Every time I've done something (laughs) new and now was another one of those moments. And I thought, well, maybe it's not the right time personally, but it's the right moment in history where someone like me that does have the ability to see into different worlds and does know how to speak to people of all different kinds of backgrounds, but does have a very clear vision of what our country could be. Maybe now is the right time for someone like me to run. And I am a person that believes that you don't live with regrets in your life as long as you push yourself. And would I regret more not doing it or would I regret trying and maybe it not working out more? And I knew that I would regret not trying. So I threw my hat in the ring and I made some commitments to myself that I would always tell people exactly where I stood on every single issue, even if they disagreed with me. And that was a commitment to myself and to voters. I also uh, made a commitment. I was going to work really hard, but I was going to figure out how to run as a working mom. And so, you know, I had friends and family members come to my house because someone like me doesn't run usually, independently wealthy people do, or people do that have someone else that can stay home and take care of their kids. They have a partner. And I had friends sign up to mow my lawn for a year. I had friends sign up to watch my dog when I was traveling. And I had a family friend sign up to like travel across the state with me with my son. So it took a village for someone like me to run, but it made me really proud that we figured out how to do it so that a voice like mine could be heard. Oh, that's incredible. You have good friends. I have a question about your vision for this country. What can our country be? In in your mind, what is the ideal? You know, I I always feel like as progressives, we win when we paint a picture of the future and what it could be. And conservatives or the right wing wins when they paint a picture of our past. So I'm very clear that we are not organizing and the work I've done to go back to supposedly better days, because I don't believe we have ever lived up to what could be our best days as a country. And I believe truly deeply that most people are progressive on issues that truly matter to our families. It is not asking too much or too greedy for uh, people in the richest country in the world to all be able to go to the doctor when they're sick. I don't think it's too much to ask that we value and invest in our people as our greatest asset, which includes their education, that we don't just judge our economy by the GDP and unemployment figures, but we judge our economy by how well working people are doing and that we actually truly push ourselves to be a democracy where as many people can participate as possible. I don't seek perfection. I seek progress. And for me, what I understand about democracy and the work that I do is that it democracy has always been one of the greatest tools to foment change. And because it is so powerful, it will also be a incredible threat to the elite and those that are in elected office already. And so we will see people try and undermine that power of ordinary people. And it's our job to always push and fight back. And 
I believe that our country can be an incredible example of what a equitable, multiracial society can be. And that at this juncture where we face so much pain and division and also looking at continued and potential pain around climate change and income inequality, that we have this ability to invest in a greater, better, more equitable future where everyone can see their common interests and actually be a true democracy that is for all people. I get called an uh, eternal optimist, but I don't see myself as an eternal optimist. I see myself as someone that has the imagination to know where we could be and then work incredibly hard to get us there. So from your Senate run, what did you learn about the state of American democracy or maybe more specifically the state of democracy in the state of Texas that you did not expect? You know, I guess what I learned, if I'm quite frank, is that there is like a lack of understanding, especially in states like Texas, I think Georgia and Arizona as well, where the Democratic establishment, if you will, does not understand yet the power fully of communities of color. If you look at changing Texas and what it would take to change the state, there's been a prevailing theory, which has made us lose for the last 30 years. <laughs> and that is that you run moderate Republican-like candidates, mostly that are white, to try and mobilize an electorate that is mostly brown and black on the Democratic side. <laughs> and it has made us lose every single time. And so when I ran, I knew that given my politics and who I am, that I would probably not be welcomed with open arms, but that there would be an understanding of what it meant for someone like me to run. And I learned that there is a level of being tone deaf to understand communities of color and the Latino population that deeply needs addressed within the Democratic Party. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that the Democratic Party misjudges all the time. I feel constantly that if Democrats want to win, they have to run on the big ideas. And like you said, to talk about the future in a way that actually makes sense, because what is the point of a watered down person? Why would we vote for this person who is maybe marginally different than a moderate Republican? I, I don't see the point of that, <laughs> like at all. Yeah. But so um, now that you've had this experience, you've been in this field for 20 years in making democracy work. What do you think today in 2021 are the most urgent issues facing the health of our democracy? When I ran for Senate, I would get asked this question all the time. And of course, you could go through a litany of issues, like what would be the first thing I did when I got to the Senate? And, you know, these are numbers before COVID, but 60% of Americans didn't have more than $1,000 in savings, or that one in five student debt borrowers were already in default on their loans, or the fact that in this country, half of the people over age 55 have $0 in retirement savings, or whatever the issue may be, that if we didn't fix how our democracy functioned, then we weren't going to be able to tackle those problems. Our country was founded on a radical proposition that ordinary people could come together and decide who had the best ideas to solve their problems and represent them. And of course, that was only at the time extended to white land owning men. But it was still a radical idea that there would be no kings and that no one was above the law. And we have lost 
a true commitment to that value. And so what I see what we need to do are, I think, a few key things. And it was the most popular things I would say on the campaign trail was, one, we had to get big money out of politics. And it meant not just like campaign finance reform, but we had to come to a place as the country where we had publicly financed elections so that electeds actually were running for us, the American people, versus for their donors. H.R. 1, I think, is an incredible piece of legislation that is exactly what anyone that believes in democracy should support. And I really do think we need a federal level of action, which is to make it as easy and accessible as possible for every single American to vote. And the last thing I feel like we need to do is make election day a federal holiday so that everyone can participate. I think there is no better way to celebrate our country than on election day and feel like, wow, we are all casting our vote for the future of our country, for the future of our children, for how we believe we're going to tackle the biggest problems we all face together. So as an everyday citizen, what are two things I could be doing to advance the radical democracy that you talk about? You know, I think not everyone is going to be an activist, and that's okay. But I think there's two critical things we need to do. One is obviously people need to vote, but they need to extend beyond themselves and make sure that people in their families and networks are voting. I think especially as moms, we have this tremendous power, especially over if you have teenagers. And it's never too early also to start talking to your kids about what voting is and why it's going to be so cool and important that they're going to be able to do it and what a responsibility it is and a privilege. I take my son with me every single time I vote and I want him to learn when he's very little, like this is part of what we do. So you don't have to go knock on other people's doors, but just within your own family, building that culture. And the other thing I really want to challenge us to do, and I try and challenge myself to do, is to make sure that we're not building up silos, to not listen to people if they don't agree with us on every issue. I really see that the incredible division that we have in our country is intentional. It is designed so that we can't see our common interests. At the end of the day, I think what people are struggling with and what people want for their families, for our country, there is a lot of similarity, even if it's difficult to see. You know, I was born in a small coal mining town in rural Ohio, and I had so many incredible neighbors there that really took in my family and my mom in particular. And I recently went back there to see them and a lot of them voted for Trump. And my initial gut reaction was to want to turn my back on them because I felt like they had turned their back on me and my family. And they had even asked me as a child to call some of them like grandma, especially this woman, Ruby, who was our neighbor next door. And I really had to ask myself if turning my back on Ruby, like what would that do? And we had a real conversation about what we both wanted for our families. And there was a lot of alignment. There are some people you're never going to move, but I refuse to give up on people that I know are good in their hearts, even if they voted in a way that I don't believe in. Because at the end of the day, Ruby is my ally in the country I want to build, and I'm never going to give up on her. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, I agree. I think we are much 
more in alignment with most people around us, even if they voted for Trump. I have lots of friends actually who voted for Trump. And that's totally inconceivable to me. But at the same time, they have been kind. They have been real friends, you know, who show up when I'm in a time of need. And and that speaks volumes, right? At the end of the day, they're still humans and they're our friends. And because they voted differently, this doesn't mean that we should abandon them. Right. Who does that serve anyway? If I care deeply about economic justice and racial justice, like we are being pitted against each other, especially as working people, to serve the interests of an economic and political elite that really have nothing to do with the things that we want as a community and country. Right. So here's my last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? What makes me hopeful is that I think that Even with all of the division we see in our country, a lot of people feel left out for different reasons. A lot of people feel deep economic pain. But I think out of all the crisis we face, there is also these incredible opportunities to go deep and structural. I feel prouder of the Democratic Party today than I did five or 10 years ago, or when I was growing up. Today, we've come to a place as a country and across even just not just with Democrats, but with Republicans as well, where there is an understanding that our criminal justice system has been built to punish and has caused massive harm to our entire society that's so dehumanizing and cruel. We've come to a place as a country where the majority of Americans agree that undocumented immigrants should have a shot to become full Americans. And we've come to a place as a country where there is true understanding that the economy has only served the interests of a very few over the last 30 plus years and that we need deep economic structural change. So I have a lot of hope that we are clear about at least what the problems are. And now we need to get some clarity about what the solutions are. Well said. I agree. I think uh, it's very hopeful that we are clear now about what the issues are. And in many ways, that was not true four years ago. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight. Thank you for all the work that you do to expand our democracy and make it work for everyone. Thanks so much for telling the stories that matter on democracy. I agree that we need deep structural change And I'm hopeful that the investment in young voters, especially in Texas, will pay off. But what worries me is that it may be not soon enough. The governor of Texas has just signed the voter suppression bill SB1 into law, and two more life-altering laws went into effect this week as well. The first is the permission to carry a handgun without a permit. This measure was not popular. According to a University of Texas poll, 59% of Texans and law enforcement officers opposed it. The second law bans abortion after only six weeks, which comes on the heels of similar efforts in Georgia, Kentucky, and Mississippi. And just to remind you, and I know that you've already heard it, Many women don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks. What's worse in my mind, though, is that it works by deputizing ordinary citizens to enforce this law. Anyone can sue an individual who aids or abets an abortion after six weeks. So that could be someone who's giving you a ride, your spouse, or the clinic staffer. 
If successful, there's a $10,000 reward. And to make matters even worse, the day after the law went into effect, the Supreme Court, by a 5-4 to four vote, issued an opinion refusing to block the law. We're not powerless to change this. Like Christina, I'm confident that turning out the vote and empowering our voices will bring forth a democracy that truly works for all of us. Remember that the representatives who created and passed these laws were elected at the state level. You have the power to hold them accountable, vote them out, and elect new ones who protect your rights and align with your values. Next week, our guest is Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas. She's a New York State Assembly member representing the 34th District, which includes the diverse Queens communities of Jackson Heights, East Elmhurst, Woodside, and Corona. We talk about her passion to serve her constituents and her commitment to good governance. Big, bold ideas don't move quickly. We can't magically get things done without people without movements and without advocacy and without activism. It's critical to elect good people. It's also critical to stay involved. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Zach Travis. Listen to us every week on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.